Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, again via Zoom this morning, I have Sue Grimmett with me um, from the office. Morning, Sue. Good morning. And uh, Peter Cat joins me again with, um, and every time, it, it doesn't matter, you can go a day without talking to Peter Cat, and he's updated the Zoom background. Um, so <laughs> it's a bit, become a bit of a custom over the pandemic, Peter, to ask you about your Zoom background today. Hey, good morning. Um, this one says, share a story, start a conversation. Just remembering that we're homo narans, not homo sapiens. Yeah. Tell stories. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we're, we're so excited to be joined by today's guest, um, who uh, is, is a voice that, that has been a relatively new one um, to, to me and, and to us in our reading, but blown away by the work that she has done. Uh, it is Sarah Augustine, who is the founder and co-chair of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery and an adjunct professor at Heritage University. Uh, her book, The Land is Not Empty, Following Jesus in Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery, um, is a it's an outstanding, um, game-changing work in, in so many ways, and we're so excited to be discussing it with her today. Sarah, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, via Zoom from over in the U.S., Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, just to bring our listeners into the moment and paint the, the picture a bit, where in the U.S. are we talking to you from? Sure. So I live in the central Washington Valley, uh, the Yakima Valley. Uh, so Washington State is in the Pacific Northwest and uh, not to be confused with Washington, D.C., which is all the way on the other side of the country. So I live in a quite a rural community in fact, I live on the Yakima Reservation, uh, Indian Reservation, which is um, the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation. Yeah, beautiful. Wonderful. Well, we are going to discuss, um, I suppose, the idea of the doctrine of discovery um, today, which it is interesting, despite sharing many conversations in our context in Australia around what the, the travesties that have occurred here and the genocide that occurred here, I hadn't actually come across the concept of the doctrine of discovery in such a, a clear way before, and it's incredibly helpful to know and to name it. So perhaps to start the conversation, Sarah, could you uh, share a little bit about the doctrine of discovery and how you came across um, the, the concept? You bet. So the doctrine of discovery is a body of law and policy that defines reality for indigenous peoples across the world that is considered the discovered world. So when I'm talking about the discovered world, this is um, when Europeans developed the technology to be able to traverse oceans. Uh, they formed agreements about how they would divide up the land in the world, um, what they termed the new world and um, the doctrine of discovery is uh, is the foundational laws are actually originate from papal bulls. But I wanna be really clear that, that, that the doctrine of discovery is more than a few dusty old papal bulls. It is the precedent that has built, been built upon that um, international, those original international agreements that became international law and then national law for many nations, including the United States. So the doctrine of discovery was codified um, by the Supreme Court in the 1800s and still remains um, the, the defining law for land tenure for indigenous peoples in the United States. It was last cited by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2005 um, as the basis 
for denying indigenous peoples uh, rights to their land. Yeah. That's, and that's a really interesting point that you do uh, highlight in the book that a lot of people might think this was something that happened a, a few hundred years ago. And yes, it was horrific, but no one would, would stand by these things today. But when we have a legal system that is built on precedent, when that is how we, we come to decisions today, and that's the precedent that's been set, it, it keeps us in a bind. Is, is that something that you find surprises people often the most when you talk about this, is how much at play this is legally still even today? It is. It's it's shocking, I think, to many people um, who who really think that it, it's more of a cultural artifact, or it's it's about attitudes or the way that you feel, rather than acknowledgement that it is a body of law and policy that defines reality for Indigenous peoples. So it's not about. Um, how people feel in their hearts, you know, so for people in the dominant culture, it's not about how you feel in your heart, or what your thoughts are, it's about the law and how that law determines who is um, able to own uh, and control land and who isn't. And all of the different, uh, many institutions that flow from that, which includes everything from child protective services to public education, incarceration, all of these um, systems then and institutions are influenced by the doctrine of discovery as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. it, The, the, the wide reaching implications of this are just stunning to think about, but I suppose when you see how culturally inbuilt um, racism has become, it's not surprising to know that there's some pretty deep roots in it. Uh, One element uh, that, that you make clear really on is the role that the church played in all of this. And, and in fact, I think it might be in the, uh, the summary of the book on the back, um, the words, what was done in the name of Christ must be undone in the name of Christ. The good news of Jesus means there is still hope for the righting of wrongs, right relationship with God, others, and the earth requires no less which I just thought was an outstanding um, paragraph there. But this is a really essential point to highlight that this this had the church hand in hand with, you know, this doctrine of discovery that um, that has caused so much pain and devastation. It, it, what was the, the role of the church alongside this? You bet. Well, so originally the Catholic Church, um, and, and we say the cat, we call it the Catholic Church, today, but originally when these papal bulls, the founding papal bulls were issued, it was the church, the global church, um, the, the, the representation of um, Christ and his church or the Holy Roman Empire um, was really creating a system of justifications, moral justifications for why it would be okay for European powers to take over lands that were already inhabited. And so there was this principle of terra nullius, which is still a legal term that's used in, in many, um, many nations. It's certainly still used in the United States. And it, what terra nullius means is that the land is empty. So if, if the land is not ruled by a Christian monarch, then it was considered to be empty of human beings. Hmm. So that's, that's sort of the principle of terra nullius. And then from there, there are justifications um, doctrinal justifications, theological justifications for why this is an okay thing to do. And so because it's coming from the church, it's using church doctrine as the basis for for why this is justifiable. And so this, although this originated from from the Catholic Church, 
has been built into mainline Christian theology and tradition and culture over the centuries. So this understanding, um, one understanding that I would say is really key and crucial is that um, God has a chosen people and that chosen people as it's defined in the Old Testament is, uh, is the people of Israel. And so once again, this is not a Jewish theology, this is a Christian theology. So I'm gonna be really clear about that. Uh, so, but there is this covenant, God has a covenant with God's people and with the coming of Christ, um, that covenantal relationship shifts from one people to the body of Christ, the church. And so God has a covenant with, um, with the body of Christ. And so that body is empowered to, to do God's will. So if you look at the Exodus story, mm. this covenant that God has with God's people enables that people to go and to take over the land of Canaan and, um, and, you know, make war on those people and take over um, all of the assets and wealth of that place. So the, so the Christian church follows that same logic and says, we are now the covenant. We have a covenantal relationship with God as God's people, and we are empowered to do that, to subdue and slay um, uh, the pagans and infidels. That's how it's described in a papal bull. And then um, to for those who won't convert, to put them in perpetual servitude, uh, perpetual slavery and servitude. So this is the justification for, for why um, one group of people, Europeans or Christians, are empowered to go and take over the property and wealth of other peoples um, and then and not acknowledge their, their humanity. So that's just, I would say that's one sort of moral justification. You see it in the United States through manifest destiny. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, this idea that in the United States, the people who settled on the East Coast had a mandate from God to settle the entire continent from the East Coast to the West, and that that was um, a special privilege of the people of God. And, you know, I'm a Mennonite by tradition, I'm a Mennonite uh, woman, and, um, and, and many of these ideas are still sort of spoken and thought about within many main, mainline denominations, including, you know, Mennonites, who think of themselves as people of the land and as uh, their lands have been bestowed upon them by God. I think we should just to ground everything you're saying in where we're currently sitting, because it has so much um, importance for us because um, we're sitting here as you know, Peter and I are clergy in the Anglican church and, you know, the church of England was, um, was the, the part of the arm of colonization in, in Australia. We, um, part of the system that clearly embraced that covenantal right to dominate, to drive out, to colonise, to embrace the lie of terra nullius and um, to, you know, we have in our history as, um, you know, as a penal colony that was, um, you know, that was clergy who were known as the flogging parson and they were very much involved in the punitive um, and the, the the harsh kind of colonizing regime for some of them it was hand in glove with um, the structures of church and the structures of society were pretty much intertwined and and they really did and, and you know history that that long arm of um, for us as the Anglican church I think we we need to um, 
really look closely at the land on which our church is sitting, the relationships that we've had with power and with colonization. And, um, you know, so so everything that you're saying, you know, is it'd be great to also, I think we'll probably use your book for follow on conversations, looking really closely at the Australian lens as well and, and where we find ourselves now. But I think we, we certainly need to ground our religious tradition in our history. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Sarah, I think um, in, the, in the book you do touch on some conversations you shared with an Australian Indigenous man. I think his name might have been Ken. Um, and he's seeing the, the resonances between the, the two stories. What stood out to you um, in that? Yeah, so um, in, let's see, 2011 and 2012, I was working on a statement to repudiate the Doctrine of Discovery for the World Council of Churches and once that statement was established, then I was organizing indigenous peoples from churches around the world, member churches of the World Council of Churches, to try and get um, program and support or budget towards dismantling the doctrine of discovery for the World Council of Churches. And that is how one primary way that I met indigenous leaders from across the world. And so um, uh, in that work, um, I got to hear stories from indigenous peoples, including from Australia and New Zealand and other parts of the Pacific uh, that were so similar to the stories, not only of my people, but people that I've worked with, especially in Central and South America, just to, to hear that it's the same story wherever you go. So one of the things that was challenging working at the World Council of Churches level, I, w I did a speaking tour across Europe and a variety of you know, places, more than one actually, and, and I would go places and people would say, it's just so abstract. I just can't understand it. It's just, you know, you're talking these big words and I don't understand what you're talking about. And I would go talk with indigenous communities and people would immediately know what I was talking about. <laughs> it's not abstract to them. You know, um, other um, indigenous peoples, brothers and sisters across the world who are facing relo forced relocation, um, not having uh, land rights, the inability to control what's going on in their own lands, having national governments um, denying sovereignty or self-determination of indigenous peoples, um, and et cetera, across institutions. And so I think when I was, when I met Ken and we were, we were working together, you know, it was really, I would say in one conversation, we were on the same, on the same page and then working together and with many others um, to, to call the World Council of Churches at that time uh, into um, relationship that is meaningful, where there's dedicated program and budget, not just for solidarity, but for actual dismantling. Yeah. It's um, there's so many uh, areas that cross my mind that I'd love to, to explore. I mean, here in our context, um, ongoing one one big area of, of tension seems to be Australia Day and the fact that some people in Australia are not comfortable changing the date of Australia Day, despite the horrific um, you know fact that we celebrate our national day, you know on on the day of colonisation um, rather than a day of unity or a day of of a new mm. narrative. That's the day we still choose to celebrate. And it's yeah. interesting to me when we're exploring the doctrine of discovery and the ways it is still at play in the world today and the the role our traditions have, have had in, uh, I, I guess, creating this world, how so uh, commonly the response is still, oh, but that was back then's problem. I mean, let's not 
cause problems about it today. Let's not, you know, we, we don't need to bring this into today. Everyone's okay now. Everything's a lot better today. Um, how important is it, Sarah, that we get, you know, globally on this front, that we realize this is not an issue of a few hundred years ago, but that until we wake up and realize that the role we have played in this and our traditions are played in this, nothing's going to change. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think it's important uh, for all of humanity. And so I'm going to flip that around a little bit. Often when we're talking about Indigenous people, at least in my country, in the United States, Indigenous people are under 2% of the population. So it feels like, hey, you know, this is not that big a deal. It's not that many people. You know, it doesn't feel like that big a deal. So, you know, it matters for Indigenous people who are often the most vulnerable peoples across a variety of societies. But it doesn't just matter for Indigenous peoples. It matters for all people. And, and let me explain why. Right now, the engine of our global economy is extractive industry. So oil and gas exploration and extraction, mineral exploration and extraction. And it ha it's those that industry is so destructive to our ability to remain um, alive on earth. <laughs> and the people who are objecting to that are indigenous peoples. So it, it doesn't matter any continent that's inhabited by humans. When there is protest, it is often led by indigenous peoples who are saying, we can't live this way. Uh, we need to protect the sacred waters. We need to protect our lands. And um, that advocacy is not just for their own communities, for our own communities and peoples and lands, but for all of life on earth. And so I guess what I would say is that um, I believe, and I think uh, many indigenous peoples would agree with me, that we are living in a closed system on earth and that we're interdependent. So what one person does is gonna impact uh, the ability for another person uh, to, to thrive. And so because we are living in a closed system, that is to say limited amount of water, air, soil, um, it's necessary to, to monitor what I would term as systems of death, those systems that are extractive, they're looking for a short-term game, they, they disrupt the ability for the systems of life to be able to function properly. And so uh, indigenous peoples have a message of hope for humanity, actually, and that message is we can live here together um, in, in a good way. And so, you know, I think understanding what the doctrine of discovery is, whether we speak those words or understand those words, understanding that there is structural basis and justification, that is to say the laws and policies affirm that systems of death are able to rule you know, acknowledging that and confronting that is a process towards choosing life and seeking life and life abundant. And it just so happens that Indigenous peoples are leading that effort right across the world. Yeah, no, that's that that's so outstanding. And it's, it reminds me of um, how often on this podcast it, uh, it has come up, um, the, the idea that People ask about which social justice cause are you passionate about? You know, are you really passionate about climate change? Are you really passionate about um, indigenous rights or whatever it might be? And you have those moments after a while, like you have just perfectly illustrated there, Sarah, where you realize it's all the same thing. They're, 
there aren't these separate tangents of, you know, you can care about that, but you can opt out of that one. But when you really get it, it's, it's all talking about the same, the same thing and the same essence. Um, so I, I suppose exploring how we got here, how our arrogant traditions believed what they believed and continue to believe what they believe, it is helpful, and you, you've already flagged this briefly, but to go all the way back to the, the Exodus story, um, because that is, uh, you know, one that certainly in, in my childhood in church growing up, I read as a, a story of victory and a story of, you know, the, the good guys won, the good guys got what they needed, or, you know, that, or, or certainly that was the promise. And, and, um, and your reading of it was transformative for me to, to understand the Exodus story in an entirely different way. So I'm, I'm hopeful maybe you could share a little bit of, um, of, of that with us. You bet. And so, um, yeah, I mean, for me, the Exodus story is a cautionary tale. <laughs> I don't think of it as something that we should uh, be trying to reproduce. I, I see it as a cautionary tale. So um, it, it is just a great story of showing how violence that's passed down through generation generations results in not only more violence, expanded violence and death, but um, but affirmed and structuralized violence. So I'm going to start with Esau and Jacob. So in the Esau and Jacob story, you have two brothers where one um, takes advantage of the other, um, not just in one, one instance, but over their lifetime together, um, and is rewarded for that, for taking advantage of his brother. And then within among his descendants, so you know Jacob um, takes advantage of Esau, and then Jacob's offspring end up um, enslaving his favorite son, which is Joseph. So you see that expanded sort of violence, um, self-serving, you know, selfishness. Um, and then Joseph endures this horrible experience where he himself is isolated from his people and is, is made a slave. And uh, he has dreams and is able to inform, you know, the Pharaoh which is the, the ruler of Egypt about what's coming. There's going to be a famine. And what he does is he empowers the Pharaoh to, um, to store up food and wealth in anticipation of this event. And what they do with that is not share it evenly with all the people of Egypt, but uh, rather to, for, for the Pharaoh to become like a god. So what happens is, you know, first the people are encountering this, uh, this shortage and first they sell all their crops to him, then they sell their land, then they sell their bodies and they sell the bodies of their children. And so Pharaoh essentially becomes like a god. And within one, a few generations, who are the slaves? Everybody's enslaved actually, but including Israel is now slaves. So you start with this, with this one brother, um, being uh, oppressing the other. And across the generations, you see that it's just further expanded and expanded. And by the time Pharaoh is empowered, by the end of that story, Pharaoh is like a god. He has absolute power over everyone in that land. And so for Israel to escape, in order for them to escape, they go into another land and subdue that people. Um, it's just, you just see that, um, that violence begets violence um, through the generations. And so, yeah, I think of, I don't think of the Exodus story as being one of, of liberation. I think of it as, as being the story of war 
and systematic war. And strangely, Joseph, who's a hero of the Bible, is sort of the originator of capitalism in that tradition, from my point of view. I mean, he's really, and so anyway, I find that to be to be kind of a strange uh, celebration. I'm so glad you brought up that reading of Exodus. Um, because in, in the Easter Vigil, that reading is, you know, it, the, our lectionary says that you can choose all, from all of this range of readings for the vigil, but the reading you must have as part mm -hmm. of the vigil is the Exodus reading. And every year when I'm sitting in the Easter Vigil and we, you know, it's got wonderful baptismal sort of uh, overtones to it, but every year as I sit through that reading, and there is this rejoicing at the end of the reading that says that, and God threw the Egyptians, horse and rider, into the sea. And there's supposed to be this moment of <laughs> glorious victory. And my, my heart sinks because of exactly what you've described, that, that what we're enshrining in this story is, is that, that um, colonisation um, uh, Responding, responding to violence with violence, even if it's violence directed against someone else, is, is just creating that cycle that is leading the world, particularly at the moment, into a, a world of incredible disruption and destruction. And um, I have incredible discomfort every year that we actually hang our understanding of who we are and what we're doing as we move towards Easter. I mean, it, this is supposed to be this is supposed to be the celebration of the resurrection of the one who liberates. And at the heart of the celebration is this story of oppression, oppression by everyone being oppressed by everyone else. So thank you so much for that reading. It's a, it's a liberating reading. Thank you. Yeah, it's the whirlwind. You know, it is the whirlwind. You start out with a wind and it becomes across generations, the whirlwind of violence. I think it's a good reminder that maybe the point of many of our texts is that we are, we should be appalled by them, you know, that we, we need to be open to what, um, not just assume the surface triumphalist reading of the text, but actually notice within yourself what's going on. So when Peter's appalled at that at Easter reading, you know, that sense of, you know, um, the visualisation of the horse and rider throne, all of that, um, notice what's going on in ourselves. And when we are appalled, maybe that's the text doing its work. I'm more worried by the fact that... Um... <laughs> It's read the other way of yippee, God's on our side. Um, let's go forth, you know, onward Christian soldiers, um, which is one of the hymns that we never sing here. Um, just no way, Jose. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, it's so interesting you say that, Peter. There is another song, and I don't want to particularly knock the, the creative people behind this song. I don't know a lot about it, but I do remember going to a church once and singing a modern song. It was a sort of a Pentecostal worship song. And the, the main lyric of the song was the God of angel armies is always on my side. Um, and I remembered feeling deeply uncomfortable hearing that, that lyric that there was this idea of, you know, um, basically dominating, you know, I, I will beat you no matter what you throw at me, I will beat you and get what I want because I've got, God's got my back. <laughs> you know, it's almost like I've got the best reinforcements you could hope for. And that mindset of understanding the divine you know, obviously it's, it's, we see it in the ancient world, but
but it still is there today. And, and um, I guess the, the point of the thing that comes through your book so, so clearly, Sarah, is it's not just there in some abstract theologies. It's not just there in what some churches preach on a Sunday. It's not just there in the understandings or ideas of some, but it is structurally enshrined in the laws that operate our world. Uh, that that's um that's something that I suppose I think many people probably wouldn't realize how serious that it, this is, that it's not that just some people believe it, but it's actually the law of the land still today in in twenty twenty one. Yeah, that's right, and I think that's you know if if I have a stump message, that's it. That this is the law, and it has to be dismantled, just like slavery had to be dismantled. It wasn't going to fall apart on its own. It has to actually be taken apart. And that takes effort. It takes organization. It takes people working together to do that. And it's possible. Um, and I do actually believe that um, the, the spirit of life and that spirit's people have the opportunity to be the voice to, to do mm. that work, begin that work and see it, see it through. So I was thinking about what you were saying about um, God's angel armies at my back. And I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but I was thinking about that, thinking about how, how much that is really enshrined in this idea of individualism, mm -hmm. that, I, that God is my God, my person, you know, my person's God. And that, um, you know, I've often thought, um, I don't know, this may be controversial for some of your listeners, but that, that, that God does not have a plan for my life. God has a plan. <laughs> How will I use my life to be a part of that plan? Yeah, I have uh, a life. Absolutely. Yeah. How will I use my life to be a part of that so that, um, so that I get to be part of that work of creation? And, and as what I'm devoting my life to, does it pass the sniff test? Is it consistent with the systems of life? If it's not consistent with the systems of life, then it is of the systems of death. Um, and how will I use my life? I mean, I have a choice about how I want to do that. Yeah, that's not a controversial thing to say at all. It's a necessary <laughs> thing to say. I spent a lot of time, I mean, because pastorally, the idea of God having a life uh, plan for your life is an absolute disaster because if people have been through the death of a child or something like that and are reading it as, oh, this is part of God's plan for my life, God becomes the most amazing despot. And also we have no agency. I mean, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous idea that God's got a plan for our life other than God has a desire for our life that we will discover what it is to live the life of love and transformation. But that's not a plan and it certainly doesn't include us winning stuff or losing stuff it's you know because other people do stuff which is what those biblical stories are all about you know yeah. joseph could have said hey we have the most amazing opportunity to look after the whole world because i've got this i've got this foreknowledge that this disaster is going to happen and so here we go we're going to put aside stuff and at the end of through this drought we're going to look after each other and we're going to come out the other side, you know, bigger and better, sort of the COVID-19 sort of stuff all over again. Um, mm. We could actually do something really to advance humanity. But instead he goes, oh, gee, I've got a plan and my my boss is going to become the big boss and he's going to make me even, he's going to give me power and we are going to take the world. So it's all about me and him and the rest of them. Well, 
they're going to fall in line because we're going to make them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I think Christianity has provided that narrative right across time. In fact, um, at um, the inauguration of Donald Trump, um, the person who gave your inaugural prayer was really, um, uh, her name was Paula White, and she was reinforcing this idea of American exceptionalism and manifest destiny right in that prayer. And it is affirming to, to many um, evangelical Christians in my country who resonate with that and say, yeah, we are exceptional and we are entitled and we are triumphant, all of those things. And we really need help, don't we, to discern. We've got so many narratives that are kind of locked in, have become locked in with Christian faith and practice and the way we um, tell our stories. And how do we discern where that spirit of death is and and be able to interrogate it? Because I think we've lost, which is, and discernment has been, you know, such a central part of how we practice the faith practicing this discernment is to and that's the very task is to see where are the systems of death where is this leading me to life because it's not about a plan but it's about the lure of god and god always lures us into life but we need to be discerning and not just accepting the locked in narrative Mm. that um that we have um grown up hearing um to question it and so i'm wondering at what point you know where do we become where do we lose that discernment and become just so accepting and i know it's hooked into money and power but um you know there's a few prophets that have always been calling and railing against it but gosh it seems to me in the western church we should have had a few more prophets Mm. in the last centuries well I'll, i'll tell you you know my my editor didn't didn't go for this but i wanted to have a chapter that was called the lust for security because i think among the average um a Christian parishioner or a congregation, it's not really about wanting money and power per se, but having, um, or, or even comfort, but more having security that I want to know what's going to happen. And if I'm wise and thrifty, I'm going to be able to have a comfortable retirement. I'm going to be able to send my kids to college. And, um, and in order to do that, I want to know what's going to happen in my life. And in order to do that, I'm going to invest in systems of death because that's what good people do. You know, that's what good middle-class people do. They have 401ks and they invest in blue chip stock um, consequences be damned, you know, because usually that stock is stock and extractive industry, just exactly the way, you know, the stock market was at one time based upon slavery. And so um, that desire for security, I would say is the biggest challenge to faithfulness that there is. And, and one of the things I say to people, I know it's, it's kind of irritating. So thank you for bearing with me. There is no security in this world. You are going to die. There is nothing that is going to stop that. You are going to die. You're mortal. And as long as you know that, you know, you're going to die, then you can do anything at all with your life. That is your choice. There is not a prescription that says that you have to follow these pathways so that you're not going to be a burden to your children and so that you're going to be able to hold up your head. You can choose to do what's right. (laughs) You can make that choice because, um, well, I'm not sure that Jesus and his mandate makes any, any, any promise of comfort or security at all. 
Yeah. Except for when he's joking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's that wonderful, wonderful, um, which I think is Jesus having an absolute raz of the apostles when they say, look, we left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? And he goes, and I imagine this, you know, this bunch of guys who haven't had a shower in three months. Like, what are, what are we going to get out of this? And Jesus says, oh, no worries. You're going to have thrones. You're going to have castles. <laughs> you're going to have all this stuff. And I, you know, we, re we read it as in seed. If you're loyal, Jesus will reward you. I think Jesus was taking the mickey out of them and saying, <laughs> well, guys, you know, if you want all of that stuff, you can have it. But, you know, yeah. I, I think, you know, half of them would have been rolling around uh, in laughter as Jesus sort of mocked Peter, who's asked this really dumb question about ultimate security, really. You know, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to have it all. I'm going to rule. I'm going to have power, security, and safety. And Jesus is saying, basically using the backdrop of what they're going through, saying your desires are wrong. But we preach it as, you know, these are sacred words of Jesus who promises those who follow and those who believe um, riches and wealth and, and, as you say, security. And yet the martyrs tell us a very different story. They're the people who risk everything, including their lives, for a vision of the commonwealth of God. Hmm. Yeah, what you're saying really resonates with me. And I often think about this, this human chain holding hands across time that we are a people moving through time and space. And when I, when I fall down, I'm holding, I'm holding on to the past and the future. And when my turn is passed, someone else will be there. Um, and it's not about me and what I accomplish in my lifetime or what happens in my lifetime. I'm here, I'm alive now. I have this opportunity, this life. I will spend it um, seeking to, to further God's magnificent creation, what God has made manifest to us in creation, that life, the spirit of life, the process of creation ongoing. I can spend my life doing that um, and feel secure in the knowledge that that spirit of life is ongoing. It was going before me, it will go after me. Um, and that's, you know, that's uh, life abundant. Mm. It's so interesting because you, you go way back to the, the Exodus story and that lust for security is and, and comfort is there. It comes all the way through when the doctrine of discovery was, you know, was enshrined in law, you know, the lust for comfort, the lust for security. Um, and, and it still runs the show today. And I think naming that, that lust in each of us, that desire in each of us and in our structures is such a helpful um, thing. And I know you actually explore this in the book, Sarah, when you talk about the need, and you've already touched a bit on individualism, but the need to solve things like this, to move away from an I standpoint to a, an us standpoint, a we standpoint. Um, because when I'm thinking of an I standpoint, firstly, it's, you know, uh, going to be probably quite hard for me to convince myself that just I should make different changes and different choices. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, when it's me, all I'm thinking about is my security, my comfort, uh, how? Why do we need to dismantle, alongside the doctrine of discovery, why do we need to dismantle individualism um, to find our way forward on this? Yeah, well, I think individualism at its root, which is, you know, it's a cultural 
uh, object, individualism. It's not reality. It, it is a, a kind of a cult, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's not reality. It's not consistent with the laws of the universe. Um, <laughs> the laws of the universe that say that we live in a fixed, uh, that we live in a closed system and, and we're locked into interdependence. And individualism doesn't fit within that um, reality. And so individualism, you know, it's very strange. And I would also say it's new. It, it feels like it's what's always been, but it isn't. It's a new kind of thing. It's rooted in selfishness. And I would even say that it's rooted in sin, if, if it's acceptable for me to use that word, that idea of individualism. And, you know, I was a sociologist by training. And I'll tell you that one of the things I learned early in my career is that human beings are hardwired for cooperation. Mm -hmm. We do not survive without it. We are hardwired to cooperate. If you walk, if you look at the room around you, how many people did it take to create that room? Mm -hmm. How many people are cooperating now to get the to keep the lights on, to have electricity going, your internet, all the people it takes to make this enterprise work? Um, and that's true for for every part of, of human society. And yet we, we have this falsehood of individualism that justifies um, destruction of creation itself for short-term gain and for power in one generation or one lifetime. And that's absolutely absurd. And um, it's time for us as people to stand up shoulder to shoulder with indigenous and vulnerable peoples who are standing up for what's right and are saying enough, this is this has got to stop. It's madness, yes. and it is. Um, so you know, I, going back to Ken, you you brought him up. This friend that I met at the World Council of Churches in Busan in 2013, and he said, "Sarah, you know what? You are, uh, you're the Canaanite woman." I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. that um, story. <laughs> this woman. Who's, who's in the crowd and she's desperate for her child to be healed. And she reaches out to the Christ and is asking to be healed. And she goes and, and, and appeals to uh, the prophet or to, to his disciples who send her away. She makes three requests. Um, she's met with silence. She's met with scorn. Jesus even says to her, you know, would I share my banquet uh, would I throw the banquet that I brought for my people to the dogs? You know, just full on insulting. And she doesn't give up. She just demands. She's like, no, I, you know, she's, she's calling him to account. And, um, and Ken said, that's what you're doing. You're so pushy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. Oh, but anyway, I think that is the role of the church. That is our role. Mm. is to is to find strength in each other and to work together collaborate and cooperate with the spirit of life seeking life and life abundant um, rather than giving in to despair and selfishness and individualism i think the problem is is that individualism masquerades in our culture as kind of goodness and success and righteous living you know and we tend to condemn as failures those who who are more sensitive to the collaborative, to the interdependent life. You know, our, our culture holds up individual success in terms of money, wealth, attainment, security. You know, this person has provided for their family and for the next few generations, they've donated to good causes. They've mm. kept things running, you know, and we hold that up. And while that's masquerading as, um, as 
the right way. And while we are continuing to see as failures, those who are more sensitive to the need for um, really leaning into our um, cooperative interdependent self, um, you know, the, the church is going to just be aligning itself with the problem. Yeah. Mm. One of the things I got out of your work, Sarah, was that the doctrine of discovery has actually um, filtered in or taken hold in the life of the church itself. So when someone, so if someone comes to us as an inquirer, we assume that they are terra nullius, mm. but they have, you know, there's no experience of the divine in their life. And so we, the great experts, um, connect them up to the fount of knowledge and we proceed to fill this empty space with um, our particular understanding of the faith. And so we're really treating those who come as if they're a sort of form of sausage meat that we can mash up and then produce identical Christians because we've got the goods. Uh, whereas, you know, critiquing the doctrine of discovery invites us to um, embrace sort of like the catechumenal um, process, which says this person comes to us with a rich history and a rich story. That story will not only, will actually transform us by, by welcoming someone new. Um, we get transformed in the process because they will have insights into the work of God, um, God who's been at work in their life um, for the, since before they were born, they will bring insights and we can learn something from them. And it's the same, same idea of the continent of Australia being declared vacant um, and the idea that somehow we, it was our culture that had everything to give to this continent. And so it, it's not just about the church playing its role in society, it's how the church lives its own life. And we, mm. we, we, colonize, we colonize the people who come to us. And make them into good little insert label um, form of Christian. Yeah, yeah, and, and mission has been um, so devastating um, to Indigenous peoples across the world um, through that process of erasure, erasure of culture, and erasure of tradition, and also language and faith or spirituality and faith traditions. And um, there is so much that indigenous spirituality has to offer to the world. Um, and that, that thing I wanna say um, in my experience is, um, is reality, an understanding of reality that actually works in this closed system of mm. earth. That understanding of mutual dependence of what I, I break it down in saying that it's a difference between faith, which is a belief in something I can't see, and reverence, which is the acknowledgement of the life all around me, the spirit of God, the spirit of life that is evident in the nature around me, the faithfulness that's exhibited through the systems of life. And so, yeah, I just, I, what you said, what you just said, Peter, is very profound and, um, I have heard very few non-Indigenous people say that. It's so interesting when you peel back the layers, when things are revealed, um, 
there's there are so many so many moments humbling moments but again it's knowing the truth and the truth setting you free because you know for for i think a lot of people who feel like it's certainly in the the churches i have grown up in but even been a part of maybe more recently who feel like why isn't this working why aren't we getting the people in the door to sign the pledge and sign the paper and be a part of this thing um what's really it's just seen as a failure it's never stepped back further to go well what what are we trying to do and why are we trying to do that and is it in in some way an inherently cruel and inhumane thing to be trying to do to them um yeah it's just that's just so so powerful uh you you mentioned the insights that the indigenous traditions um can provide on on this and, and many other fronts a couple i'd like to talk about briefly um uh, the way we view time, because you explore that a little bit, the cyclical linear time, and also the idea of a, a transversal worldview. Um, we might start with the, the transversal worldview. Can you explain a little bit about what, what that idea is? Yeah, so um, the transversal worldview is is understanding um, each other as relatives. So rather than... Um, sort of distant understanding our interdependence. So um, it, it is in a way the opposite of, um, of individualism, mm. this understanding of, of um, well, I would say this fiction of reality beginning and ending. It begins when you're born and it ends when you die. <laughs> you know, everything is through this lens of the self and uh, transversalism is is the opposite of that. It's under it's seeing each other and understanding each other as relatives and as necessary. That um, that we are interdependent and that interdependence is the is reality. That is the reality um, that we live in. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the one of the artifacts I would say of of this kind of individualistic culture that came out of Europe. And I say that because I don't believe all European culture is monolithic or individualistic. I would say this, this one strain that came out, happened to come out of Europe and is now spread across the world and is masquerading as reality. Progress is seen as linear and in time. So progress is about um, time going forward in a direction and that um, success is really about building monuments. So it's about accumulation, accumulation of wealth, accumulation of property, accumulation of status, and that this is progress. This is progression um, that you see a growth and a change in technology and, and, and that, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's directional. And in indigenous worldview, um, and once again, indigenous peoples also are not monolithic, but in, in my learning, what I have learned um, from my people and others is that time is actually um, a fiction and, and the understanding of reality is really in space. So an understanding of land. So time isn't as important because, you know, time is in a cycle. You see, you know, in one generation, maybe there's, there's a, a horse that walks by and then you see the wagon and then you see the car, but it's kind of all taking place within um, space. You know what I'm saying? What, what really matters in terms of reality is, um, is land and, and, um, and land is such a funny word too. I, I wanna say instead of land, reality, 
space as it is, the, the, the place that we abide in and abides in us. And so that's what is necessary for, uh, for um, humanity to, to go forward and to, to go on. And so if your orientation is space, your, your goal is to preserve it. You want it to be good and the same. You, don't, you want to leave it intact. If your orientation is time, then what you're trying to do is accumulate and whatever you trash in your path, it's a, it's a worthy loss, if that makes any sense. So this is really, this is really tricky. And I'm not the one who came up with this. This is Vine Deloria who wrote this in a book called God is Red. But it, it's hard for these two different worldviews to understand each other and be in dialogue with each other when in one worldview, um, land is sacred and precious and the basis for reality, the basis for myself, my ancestors are there in the ground. Um, the animal people um, have had generations there in the ground. This is my world. It is the thing that I am responsible to and for. And then to see it as a commodity. If, you, if, if time is your orientation, then that land is just a commodity. It's something to be used up and extinguished in the process of accumulation, whether that is building the tallest building or building the most subdivisions or you know, accumulating the most money, whatever it is, that is just a, a, you know, a product. It's an input to the outcome that I envision. And this is very much kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, it's kind of satanic, that idea in the indigenous worldview. That you could just chew through reality for the self. Yeah, gosh, that's so so brilliant. It reminds me, not that long ago on on the on a podcast where Peter spoke about how at our worst humans can essentially have a parasitic effect on this world and on reality. Um, and I suppose when we're operating out of the idea of the the self and you know trashing trashing reality. <laughs> for the sake of the self um there's no other way to look at it than, than to see us as at times being capable of being parasites in this creation which is a i know a really strong idea but i i don't know it's i think it resonates with with more and more people who feel caught up in something that they ne never necessarily signed up for never necessarily thought was a good idea themselves but it seemed to be the path everyone else was following and the path everyone in their world had been following for a while so what else are you going to do but i think um I don't know. I think a lot of people hearing this will have that sort of uh, that moment that, that that you hear about in the Celtic tradition of the deep knowing, a sense of, of course, this is true. This has always been true. I and and we have just been blind to it. It's so so helpful and so profound. Thank you. And I would just say, you know, for anybody who's listening, if if you're having that experience, you can stop. It is not required to go on. You can object, you can resist in ways large and small. It is not necessary to devote your life to something that is empty. It is possible to have abundant life and to choose systems of life and to look out and say, what is it? What is the plan of the spirit of life? And how is that demonstrated to me in nature? Those are the systems of life. And how can I devote my life to being part of that? You can choose that. I have the ability to choose that. If you do, if you do, then uh, reach out. I can't wait to to connect. 
you involved in the coalition to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. Oh, that's outstanding. So, well, the, the book for those who want to track it down, and I imagine there'll be plenty who do after this conversation, is The Land is Not Empty, Following Jesus in Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. And Sarah, how can people find you and, and your work online as well? Sure. So we have a website. It's www.dofdmeno.org. That's D-O-F-D-M-E-N-N-O dot O-R-G. We are a Mennonite uh, coalition, but all are welcome. We're open to all. That's outstanding. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's been a life-giving conversation, Sarah, and we're just so grateful for your time. Thank you for the invitation. What a joy to be here with you. I wish we had many more hours. I've enjoyed so much hearing um, what you had to say, Dom and Peter and Sue. And uh, I have to say, some of your words are going to stick with me. And I'm shocked and amazed to hear them from you. I dare say it's mutual, Sarah. I dare say that's mutual. Wonderful gift yes. of your time, Sarah. Really, really, uh, there's so much I'm going to take away from this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.